Father in heaven, we appreciate so much the privilege that we have of being part of your family by faith in Jesus Christ. We recognize that every step that we take, every action that we are involved in is ordered by you. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that because the indwelling Holy Spirit resides within each of us, we desire more than every thing in the world to please you in all aspects of our life and attitude. We pray that this day would be a day that is used by you in our life. Give us information and knowledge that will help us in our walk with you. And then our Father as well, we ask that the, uh, the will and the desire to please you will be enhanced. We pray for all aspects of the ministry here at Mid-Valley today. We especially pray for those who are involved in the war-torn areas of the Middle East. We ask our Father that your protection and your direction will be theirs in abundance today. We ask specifically for those who have trusted Christ and are part of the family of God over there, we ask that they would know the assurance of your presence with them today. We ask that this day would be a day that is used in a special way uh, in all aspects of life and living here in the United States as well. The many churches that proclaim your word unashamedly and courageously, may they know fruit. In Jesus' name we pray. Now, what I want to do today is something a little bit different, and that is I want to talk about uh, kind of some random archaeological finds. Uh, we've looked at, we've, we've kind of zeroed in on specific uh, aspects, but I want to just randomly take some, and some of these you probably have never heard of before, and others of them, uh, why uh, they will be... I think kind of interesting to you. But let me, if I may, start out by saying this. First of all, the Bible is a selective record of salvation history that is theologically oriented. It is not extensive. Now what I mean, I should say exhaustive. What I mean by that it is that the Bible is not a total and complete history of everything that took place in the Middle East and in history during that time. God picks things that are theologically oriented that are telling us about how he brought salvation to the earth. That's the specifics. Does everybody understand that? That's, that's important because a lot of things happen that are simply not recorded in the Bible. But what we do have in the scriptures are what God wanted us to know. All right, number two is archeology span is selective fragmented material that complements the Bible when properly understood. Uh, one of the things that hopefully we have seen up to this point is how fragmented the archeological material is. Just a fraction of what could be excavated has been excavated. And over time, there have been basically two philosophies when it comes to archaeology. 
Philosophy number one. If it doesn't fit their preconceived idea, they just toss it aside. And that has happened a lot with people who come to the scriptures and don't believe it. They think it's all a myth. And if it doesn't fit, out it goes. The other is, the other extreme, we're saying everything that we find has biblical significance. No, it really doesn't. Because sometimes it doesn't have, there's no relationship to the scriptures at all. All right, now, having said that, are you ready for some brand new words? Sarabet el Qadam. How many of you ever heard of that before? Nobody? Good. Did you make it up? <laughs> no, I found it on the internet. And you know how you can believe everything on the internet. Anyway, Sarabet Akadam. In the Sinai Peninsula, right up there, another map is right here, Sarabet Akadam. And then what I want you to notice as well is where it is positioned in the Sinai Desert. We're going to see shortly that it is right along the route of the Exodus. Now, you remember the children of Israel <coughs> were in bondage in Egypt. And uh, they were the slaves of the Pharaoh. Now, it's important to realize that uh, the Bible tells us they were slaves in a geographical area, but I think it's important for us to realize that they were probably slaves of the Pharaoh, virtually spread all over. And it's important to realize that the bulk of them were probably up there around what we would call the Cairo area today. Down at Sarabel El Qadam, there was a special colored stone, and this was a sought-after stone. And this was a mine down at Sarabet El Qadam. And you can see the various uh, findings and the various statues that were there. There was also apparently a temple down there to a pagan deity. But the interesting thing that I want you to notice is this. If we look at Bible history, we start out with Adam, then Abraham, then Moses. <clears throat> From Adam to Abraham, roughly, let's guess, is approximately 2,000 years. All right? We know Abraham is about 2,000. Adam, according to uh, some biblical scholars, was approximately 2,000 years prior to that. Then you have Moses coming along approximately six or 700 years after the time of Abraham. How did they communicate from one generation to the next generation to the next generation? How did they tell the stories? How did they keep history alive? It is generally thought that the way they did it is through oral tradition. Now what we mean by oral tradition is that they would tell the stories and they would try to lock the stories in so that they were not embellished or overly fabricated. They would tell these stories 
from one generation to the next generation to the next generation. We see that quite a bit in the Old Testament when God tells the children of Israel to teach these things to your children. And then they're supposed to teach it to their children. It goes on and on and on and on. How did they do that? Oral tradition. Why did they do that? Because they didn't, huh? They didn't have a written language. They did not have a written language. But there was, forgive me for using this word, there was an evolution taking place in the development of language. These are Egyptian hieroglyphics. And if you go on the internet and type in Egyptian hieroglyphics, uh, you will see scores and scores and scores of plates. But this gives you a little bit of an idea of what they have found over the years with regard to Egyptian hieroglyphics. The other kind of writing that was very, very antique is what we call Babylonian cuneiforms. I don't know how people make sense of this stuff, but there are people that devote their entire life studying this kind of thing, and they can read this stuff. But the Babylonian cuneiforms over the years took shape in various ways. Now, what you have with these Babylonian cuneiforms is probably around the time of Abraham is when the Egyptian hieroglyphics and the Babylonian cuneiforms were developed, probably even prior to the time of Abraham. Now, what if we had never developed anything beyond the Babylonian cuneiforms? And what if we had never developed, or uh, not we, thankfully, but if nothing had developed beyond the Egyptian hieroglyphics? How thick do you think the Bible would be? <laughs> it would probably be about that thick. It would be massive. Massive. So what happens? Well, you've got oral tradition. It's starting to die out a little bit. But you've got Babylonian cuneiforms and Egyptian hieroglyphics. And then lo and behold. What? All right. Oh, you want to hear that again? All right. Here we go. And then you also have the development. The de How much time on your hands, Ken? You know, I I pressed that button. And all of these different sounds came out, and I said, that'll work. <laughs> and quite frankly, you can see that what is happening is from Babylonian cuneiforms and Egyptian hieroglyphics, an alphabet is formed. Now, again, that takes many, many, many years. But the interesting thing that we discover is that here are some of the early symbols in what you call the hieroglyphics and the proto-Sinaitic symbols. And then over here in this column, you see 
the Hebrew language developing. Now let me, if I may, uh, pull this up just a little bit. If you can see some of these symbols uh, down through the reconstructed names, you see the ox head, which, and I don't know how, that, how this all happened, all right? But the interesting thing is they had different symbols for different things, and they would put these symbols on a, mostly a stone, chisel them in, and this is how they communicated. Now, this is so far beyond uh, our thinking. We can't even fathom this kind of stuff. But this is the way it was done back then. Uh, if you will look closely at this symbol of the Egyptian hieroglyphics, you can see a, can you, can you see the symbol for water? You see the waves? You see the symbol for the eye? You see the symbol for the hand? The hand is, is sitting out like this with a thumb out there. And you can see these various symbols. Now they would, all of these different symbols meant something. And so if they wanted to communicate a certain measure of truth, they would put these symbols on a sheet and, or on a stone, chisel them in, and they would be able to read and communicate with this information. However, something happened, and, and here's, another, uh, here's another thing, and you, it, you can see the snake and the mouth and the eyes and all these other various symbols. When Moses delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt, the bulk of the people apparently were up in Goshen. Now we're surmising, we're kind of putting together some bits and pieces. He comes down through Sinai, he passes Sarabet el Kadam. These are where slaves were. <coughs> and lo and behold, what happens is studies have been done with inscriptions on the wall. And here is one of the things that came out of it. Our bound servitude had lingered. That's the bondage in Egypt. Moses then provoked astonishment. That would be a reference to the 10 plagues. It is a year of astonishment because of the lady. Please realize that these people down here were probably not believers in Yahweh as were the people up there. When they got down to Sinai, God revealed himself in a very special way. The interesting thing about this is that here were slaves who were writing inscriptions on the wall and they were communicating. Now, what does that tell us? Now, we're surmising, we're guesstimating at this particular point. We're guesstimating that even slaves were literate. We might think, well, these people weren't literate. Yes, they were. Slaves were literate. And they're writing these symbols on the wall. And the interesting thing as well is they're not doing it from the Egyptian hieroglyphics. They're simplifying it and writing various symbols 
that are eventually going to become the Hebrew alphabet. Let me back up just a minute. These various symbols over time and the development of all this resulted in, right here, the Hebrew alphabet. Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Daleth, and so forth. But the interesting thing is, now that we have moved from symbols to an alphabet, we can formulate certain words. It's interesting to me, and this is something that scholars are starting to recognize, that it was Hebrew slaves, Hebrew slaves, that started the development of the alphabet. That is absolutely astounding. Now, in addition, you have the Phoenicians as well, and there's a symbol somewhere in here for the Phoenicians. The whole Middle East at this time is in the process of moving from hieroglyphics to an alphabet to formulate words so that they can communicate. What is happening is they're reaching a simplified situation. Why is it that nothing is recorded from the time of Adam to Moses? Nothing. Because finally, we have a simplified way of communicating. And that's why the Bible is only that thick as opposed to that thick. Does that make sense? That's important. All right, now, to confuse you a little more, let's go to the Rosetta Stone. How many of you have heard of the Rosetta Stone? Good. I won't ask you to tell me about it. Let me tell you about it, because you probably just heard of the Rosetta Stone, but the Rosetta Stone came from Rosetta, Egypt. It is an area that is just to the east of Alexandra. Alexandra, in the ancient world, had the largest, it was, if you please, the Library of Congress of the ancient world. But there was a man by the name of Julius Caesar came along. The Egyptians had surrounded him and he decided to create a diversion. He burned four, excuse me, 40,000 documents that were stored in the library of Alexandra. And the diversion was created and essentially speaking, history was literally wiped out. All right, that's Alexandra. Let's get back to Rosetta for just a minute. The Rosetta Stone, if you go to the British Museum, there it is. Here is what it looks like. That's about the size of it. Different people standing beside it. About four feet high, two feet wide, about a foot thick. The interesting thing about the Rosetta Stone is the hieroglyphics were a complete and total mystery before we found the Rosetta Stone. The Rosetta Stone was discovered by Napoleon's army in roughly 1796 or 1799. And uh, 
Here Napoleon is, and he is, his soldiers are in the process of reconstructing a fort with the stones that are available. And apparently there's been a lot of destruction and they come across the Rosetta Stone. Now, what happened is they only had control of it for a couple of years because uh, the British came along two years later in 1801 and captured the Rosetta Stone, took it back to the British Museum. The interesting thing about the Rosetta Stone is that on the top of it, well, here are some of the details of the Rosetta Stone, and you can read those right there. Uh, there's another one. I won't take time to read it. But the interesting thing about the Rosetta Stone is it has three different languages on the stone. The top one is the Egyptian hieroglyphics, which were apparently a sacred language. Then you have the domestic language of the Egyptian people in the middle, and then you have Greek down here, where they're all saying exactly the same thing, and scholars across the time, uh, across the years, have compared all of these things, and of course we know Greek. And so we translated that, I shouldn't say we, uh, they translated it, and then they were able to make out what that said and what that said up there at the top. That's the Rosetta Stone. Now, you might say to yourself, what does this have to do with bibliarchaeology? Well, I said in the promo, in the, uh, the thing that Doug sent out, is every archaeological find has, if you please, a domino effect to other areas of interest and other areas of scholarship. This helped us immensely in other areas. Let's move on to another one. The seal of Maranepta. Why do they call it a seal? I don't know. That's, and you might say it's, you should pronounce it Sealy, but it's the seal of Maranepta. Where is this located? In the Cairo Museum. Now, just to show you that Maranepta was a real person, that's his mummy. Uh, I've got to confess to you that every now and then I feel a little bit like a mummy in this Sunday school class. Pressed for time. I knew you'd like that. I just knew you'd like that. All right. Anyway, Maranepta, uh, scholars have kind of reconstructed him, and they say that this is probably the way he looked in real life. When did Maranepta live? Maranepta, you remember the, the, uh, the history of Egypt. You had the old kingdom, the time of Abraham. You had the middle kingdom, and you had the new kingdom. In between these, you have the First intermediate, second intermediate, and third intermediate. Maranepta was the son of Ramses II, the greatest of all of the pharaohs. Ramses II reigned approximately 67 years. 
Maranepta only reigned for approximately 11 years. So Ramsey lived so long and reigned so long, virtually all of his sons died before he died in battle and various things, except for one, and that was Maranepta. Now, the interesting thing about Maranepta is this. When we discovered the seal of Maranepta, they started reading these Egyptian hieroglyphics. And they're reading along, reading along, reading along, and all of a sudden they see something down here in the bottom of the seal. And at the bottom of the seal, we see the word Israel. This is the first recorded non-biblical place where the word Israel occurs. The first in all history that we have been able to find up to this point. The interesting thing about this particular, and you can tell it's hieroglyphics at this point, can you not? But the interesting thing is that what Merneptha says is that in one of his invasions, he says, Israel is a land waste. His seed is not. In other words, he went on this campaign through Israel during the time of the judges, and he obliterated a whole bunch of the areas in lower Israel, in the lower half of Israel. The Bible doesn't record any of this. But the point that is being made in all of this is that if the Exodus takes place here, then you have Israel already in the land for over 200 years before Merneptha comes through this invasion. The cities are already established. The people are in a position where they're occupying the various cities, they're stabilized. But Merneptha decides to make this invasion, this campaign, this military campaign up through the bottom half of Israel, wiping out all kinds of cities. And so what does he say? He says, Israel is a land that is wasted. I wiped it out. And in addition to that, I wiped out a whole bunch of the Israelites. Did he wipe out all of them? Obviously not. But the point is, he used the term Israel. The very first time the term Israel ever occurred outside of the Bible. And that was probably during the time of the judges. All right, so we have had Sarabet el Khadim. We have had the seal of Merneptah. Let's do another one. The mention of the house of David. I went to Israel for the very first time in 1972. I went the second time in 1990. But the interesting thing is, up to that point in time, there was virtually no record outside of the Bible that David ever existed. 
Now, how important is David? King David is one of the most central figures in both the Old and New Testament. Number two, mention is made of him in the Old and New Testament 1,048 times. Uh, Other than God and Jesus Christ, David is the most mentioned individual in the Bible. So he's the primary subject of 62 chapters. He authored 73 Psalms, key New Testament phrases as Messiah, son of David, and the throne of his father, David. Those are basically in the Christmas narratives of the early part of the Gospels. The interesting thing is, David was viewed as a mythical figure, much like King Arthur. I know some of you think King Arthur really existed. It's, it's a great fairy tale, you know, Camelot and all that sort. But one rabbi said, I will not believe that there was a King David until I see it inscribed in stone. No trace of David ever existed outside of the Bible until, until excavations were being done at Tel Dan. Tel Dan, you remember, is way up in the north. Here is Hatzor, Sea of Galilee, way up in the north, right at the base of Mount Hermon. They're excavating around Tel Dan. There is a bulldozer pushing stones around. There is a archeologist walking along the blade of the bulldozer and he sees this stone pop up and he shuts everything down. Kind of a little bit like uh, when we find Indian ruins here in our country, everything stops until they're properly excavated. Well, that's what happened back at this particular time. Now, keep, keep in mind, up until 1993, 1994, the term David was never found outside of the Bible. That's amazing to me. That's astounding to me. But the interesting thing is in 1993, 1994, excavations are done and they find this. Now what is happening with this particular stone is uh, the bulldozer plowing along. It pushes up this stone. Here's uh, Here's another picture of it. And the guy notices the term David. In fact, not only does it say David, it says house of David. And if there is a house of David, there must have been a David, right? Precisely right. But what this stone is, is a record of a king named Haziel. Uh, We're gonna look at these scriptures here in a moment. Haziel goes and he says, I killed Joram, son of Ahab, king of Israel, and I slew the king of the house of David. Now what happened is this. 
There is Dan, or excuse me, there's Syria way up there in, at the top. Syria, of course, it, the capital of Syria is Damascus. And Dan, in one of uh, Haziel's campaigns, he comes down, conquers the city of Dan. Another thing that happens along the way is that he comes down, captures people from the nation of Israel, the 10 northern tribes. He also comes down eventually to Judah, kills their king. Now, with that in mind, I would like to turn to these passages that tell this particular story. And so if you have your Bible, take it and turn to 2 Kings chapter 8. 2 Kings chapter 8. The king of Syria prior to Haziel is a man by the name of Ben-Hadad. Uh, Ben-Hadad had come down to Israel, made various invasions. And what do we see when we come to chapter 8, verse 7? Let me start reading. Then Elisha came to Damascus. Now Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, was sick, and it was told him, saying, The man of God has come here. And the king said to Haziel, Take a gift in your hand and go meet the man of God. And inquire of the Lord by saying to him, Will I recover from this sickness? Will I recover from this illness? So Haziel went to meet him and took gifts in his hand, every kind of good thing of Damascus, 40 camel loads. And he came and stood before him and said, your son Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, Will I recover from this illness? Elisha said to him, Go say to him, You shall surely recover, but the Lord has shown me that he will certainly die. In other words, he's going to recover from this illness, but he's also going to die. Verse, uh, where am I? Verse 11. Elisha fixes his gaze steadily on Haziel. He stares him down, if you please. And uh, he does so until Haziel is completely kind of embarrassed. Haziel, verse 12, says, Why does my Lord weep? Then he answered, because I know the evil that you will do to the sons of Israel. Their stronghold you will set on fire. Their young men you will cure with the sword. And their little ones you will dash in pieces. And their women with child you will rip up. Just brutalize them. Then Haziel said, but what is your servant who is but a dog? that he should do this great thing. And Elisha answered, the Lord has shown me that you will be king of Syria. At this point, Haziel is just a servant of Ben-Hadad. 
In the next couple of verses, we discover that what eventually happens is that Haziel goes back, reports to the king, yes, you're going to get well, but what does Haziel do? He takes a wet cloth, and I suppose this is ancient waterboarding. He puts that wet cloth over the face of Ben-Hadad and suffocates him. And then he becomes the king. And the things that Elisha prophesies about are exactly the things that happen. When you come down to chapter 10, verse 32 and 33, we notice that what Haziel does in these verses, in those days the Lord began to cut off portions from Israel, and Haziel defeated them throughout the territory of Israel. And it gives us a description of all the area. When you come down to chapter 12, verse 17, we discover that the first campaign was through Israel. The second campaign is down through Judah. And in verse 17, we see, And Haziel, king of Syria, went up and fought against Gath and captured it. And Haziel set his face to go up to Jerusalem. And then it tells us that he wiped them out as well. So the prophecy of Elisha, was, Haziel, you're going to become the king. You're going to wipe out the king of Israel, the king of Judah. And lo and behold, what do we have? We have, if I can back up just a little bit. Uh, well, let me get here. Oh, I, I should have gone forward. I'm sorry. There, right there. He said, I killed the king of Israel. I killed the king of Judah, house of David. All right? So here is some very, very interesting information where archaeology comes to the surface. And you remember when we were translating and looking at the seal of or the Rosetta Stone? The only way we would be able to understand that is if we looked at the Rosetta Stone and made out these words, and we were able to figure it out. All right? All right, the next thing I want to look at. We're going to get here. Come on, girls. Let's go. Too many. There it is. Aren't all these new words just a barrels of fun? This to me is, it is not the most significant one of the day, but I find it to be among the most interesting. Uh, Katif Hanom and uh, the findings are affectionately called KH, my initials, mm -hmm. KH1 and KH2. That's probably why I like them so much. The Hinnom Valley is right here at the bottom of the area of Jerusalem. And at the bottom of this area of Jerusalem is the Hinnom Valley. The Hinnom Valley has a series of caves or ancient tombs. 
And uh, there was a man by the name, well, here's a, here's a close-up of the, of the tomb. Uh, there was a man in 1979 who was a leading archaeologist in Israel. This cave had been excavated many, many times, and it was determined that there was nothing of value in the cave. But the trained eye of uh, Gabriel Barque looked at the cave and he realized that what had happened over time is that parts of the ceiling of the cave, the stone cave, had fallen and covered the entire floor. Well, he made the determination that the significance of the cave was not on the walls or on the ceiling, but was what was buried underneath all of this debris that had fallen over the years onto the floor of this, what is called Tomb 25. And so he began to excavate, and there's a, there's a photo of him. Uh, he began to excavate, and they excavated virtually hundreds upon hundreds of things as they were sifting through all of this debris. And just, in fact, the, 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 the finds in this floor of this cave after they removed the debris numbered into the thousands. They almost overlooked one of the most significant finds, and that is something that looked very similar, probably about that big, and it was a, uh, probably the size of a cigarette butt. I mean, I'm just reading to you uh, what, the, uh, what the book uh, told me about. It was the size of a cigarette butt. And what it was, was uh, how many of you know what an amulet is? Mm -hmm. Have you ever heard that term? Yeah. Go ahead and describe it. Uh, talisman, a necklace that's thought to have special power. Yes. Uh, and uh, it would be similar to a necklace with a cross on it or a necklace with the Star of David on it. And the reason these pe people wear those things is, well, ornament, but they figure there might be some special, you know, protective powers of those things. That is, if you're given to superstition. Well, these particular findings were exactly the same thing. There were little tiny, tiny little scrolls that were wound up, probably put on some sort of a necklace, but the one that is the most significant is Ketef Hanom II. And the interesting thing is if you look on the side over there, you can see a passage from Numbers chapter 6. It is the great high priestly benediction when anybody came and sacrificed, when they were all finished, this is what the priest would say. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you peace and all these different things. Now, the interesting thing about this is that here was an interesting finding. 
And one of the things that we discovered in all of this, and it doesn't make sense to us, but the trained eye can read through this, and it was discovered that this is exactly what it said. Here is the significant part right down here. These findings and the script predate the Dead Sea Scrolls by 400 years. Before we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, the oldest manuscript we had of the New Testament, or excuse me, the Old Testament, was approximately a thousand years after the time of the Dead Sea Scrolls. We're going to look at the Dead Sea Scrolls next week. And that was the oldest Old Testament documents that we had. When the Dead, Seas were, Dead Sea Scrolls were found, that date moved up a thousand years. When this was found in 1979, it moved up, moved that up another 400 years. With all of the artifacts that were found in the floor of this cave, it was determined by the scholars and the archeological experts that uh, all of the artifacts dated to around just prior to the Babylonian captivity. So, when does this date? <coughs> just prior to the Babylonian captivity. Now, you can imagine, here are these people. They have this thing around their neck. They know the Babylonians are probably going to come and capture them. They're wearing this as kind of a protective symbol of God's presence. And uh, there you have it. This is pro tiny as this was, this is probably one of the most significant findings and the oldest finding that we have of script from the Hebrew Bible. So randomly I've looked at several. First of all, the seal of, uh, that was found up at Dan with the house of David on it, the seal of Maranepha, and then, of course, this one right here. Now, the interesting thing about this fella is that, uh, here's a photo of him. He is an expert in archeology. span He is also a tour guide. He got himself in big, big, big trouble with the Arabs several years back by saying two words. What two words do you think those were? The Don't, huh? Nation of Israel. Well, close. He said the term Temple Mount. That is extremely offensive to the Arabs because they say the fact that there was a Temple of Solomon, the fact that there was a Temple of Herod is all a myth. They think what they had on the mount. That's the origin right there. All right, folks. Hey, thank you. I hope this has been kind of somewhat stimulating. Uh, it's just kind of fascinating that there are these 
bits and pieces of archaeological discoveries over the years that have just kind of illuminated some of the things that we know from the Bible. Thank you.